And uh, my name's Mark. If you're a guest here, really glad that you're here. So in the last week, I've had an opportunity to spend a bunch of hours studying about a desert experience that the people of God had. It's our text this, this week. And last week, I had the opportunity actually to go visit the desert because my dad lives in Phoenix, and Lori and I went to go be with my dad. He's 92 years old, and in his kindness... He uh, baked us an apple pie to greet us. He still lives at home, and he's doing life in a wheelchair. So he loves God. He loves the Lord. His uh, mind is clear. But I, as I say, his body is kind of scotch-taped together. But it was really great to be with him. It was interesting to kind of go from a week of... So my dad's got a really funny uh, sleep schedule. He doesn't go to bed till like 2, 3 in the morning, so he gets up at like noon or 1. So Lori and I get up early, and we would take a hike, and we'd be in the desert hiking around. And so went from a week of hiking in the desert, and I don't know if you know this, but lots of rain this year in Arizona, so the, the desert was lush. It was beautiful. And then just kind of in this whole story. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but um, the people of God, as they're moving from Egypt into the promised land, it takes them 40 years to get to the promised land. And the Bible from Exodus 15 all the way to Joshua, so that's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua chapter 3, it's all about God's people in the desert. It's about 15% of the Old Testament. It's a big, big chunk. And it got me thinking, huh, why so much teaching, recorded history, about the Israelites wandering around the desert. Why, why is there so much? It seems disproportionate. It's a big chunk of our Old Testament. And what I concluded is that uh, the, the desert is this really, really hard place that, that can ruin us. It, it can wreck our faith. And yet the desert is that place where God wants to build faith. It's it's not a demolition place. It's a, it's a building up construction. It's, it's a training place. It's a God's gym kind of place to make us strong. And that's what God is leading his people is not just out of Egypt and out of slavery and oppression, but into not just the promised land, but into a relationship with him. And at the heart of any relationship and our relationship with God is trust. And so if the desert could wreck us or actually bless us, if it could destroy us and actually build us stronger, it's important as we find ourselves so often in a hard place to know what makes the difference from it wrecking us and ruining us and destroying our faith to actually being this hard thing that's, that's this good thing that blesses us. So I think the reason that there's so much print there, so to speak, so much of God's truth there is because so much of life in a fallen world and even following a perfect Savior, Jesus, has us going through hard places and things. So if anybody told you, man, you should just hang on to this Jesus guy because once you do, everything's easy. That was a flat-out lie. Jesus says, Come and follow me, and, and by the way, go get something. Remember what it was called? A cross, like this powerful symbol of suffering 
and giving your life up. Jesus says in this world, he didn't say, it's going to be tiptoeing through the tulips. He said, in this world, you will have, remember how it goes? Trouble, tribulation, hardship. So this is our world, and the stakes are high. It could ruin us or it could bless us. And I want you walking out of here, whether you're in the hard place or helping someone who's in a hard place, whether you just come out of it or maybe you don't even know what's ahead this week, that your position to not allow the desert experiences, hard things, to ruin you, but to actually grace your life, all right? So one of the things I did this week in preparation was just kind of reflect. It's a good thing to do that as we're teaching God's word, reading through it, just thinking about, well, what, have been the hard, what would be the desert, the difficult, the challenging, the hard times of my life? And what I found out is going back to uh, college, just before Lori and I got married, just, just about every five years, there was something. So uh, our first hard thing, my first hard thing was, uh, you, you don't know about this, and I can't go into this, but I'll just tell you, Lori and I broke off our engagement 10 weeks before the wedding. <laughs> that was hard. It was a short hard, because like 12 weeks later, we got married. But anyways, it's a wild story, but we can't tell that here in public, can we, Lori? All right. <laughs> so five years later, we're married. We bought our first house. We put on an addition. And we were house, house poor. And man, all of a sudden we knew about financial stress. Oh, that was hard. They, they, they keep getting harder. Then it went from that to losing little baby Gabriel. Lori's five and a half months along in her pregnancy in the fall of 92. Five years later, Lori's dad dies after a couple years of struggle with ALS, Lou Gehrig's. Five years later, Lori gets cancer. My dad almost bleeds out after a quintuple bypass, and my mom drops dead of a heart attack. Five years later, there's a pa painful transition after 23 years of ministry back in Wheaton, which led us here. Five years later, there's some hard, challenging things right here. Five years later is today, and our oldest daughter is about to give birth to our first grandchild, a little boy, and this little guy's got some heart complications. And still, we're still in the middle of that, trying to figure out what it is and what this little guy's going to need. And so what, what, what I realize is if, if I quickly talk about those times, it'll be really easy for me to label it, go, man, that was really hard. That was really tough. But if I try to connect emotionally, then these are kind of the words that come to mind to describe different kinds of desert experiences, helplessness, abandonment, great sorrow, deep grief, anxiety, a suffocating fear and dread, confusion, anger, depression. And I think what we're going to see here as we follow God's people in the desert is they had a default and we probably have a default. Do you know what yours is? When life gets hard, like, what do you, this is what you naturally do. Is it fear? Is it anxiety? 
Is it prayer? Is it panic? Is it gratitude? Is it grumbling? Is it a pity party, turning in, feeling sorry, fighting for control? Is it looking for God, walking away from God? God has a good word for you in his word today. So once you grab your Bible, Exodus chapter 15 is where we're at. And today we are going to follow three stories in Exodus 15, 16, and 17 that follows God's powerful deliverance, right, of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Three stories that underscore the importance of this point, that God uses the desert to build our trust in a good God as we experience his daily, gracious, sweet provision. So the desert is meant to be a training ground, not a demolition project, okay? So in chapter 15, we're in the second book of the Bible, verse 22, we come to the first desert experience that they have since crossing the water. So look at chapter 15, Song of Moses. They've just had a, a worship concert, you know, that's been song and dance. Miriam, the tambourine, the women, there's been just this joyful celebration of God's mighty deliverance from Egypt, from Pharaoh's armies, taking them through the sea. And now, and now we got the first, the first test. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur, for three days, they traveled in the desert without finding water. Three days, note that. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. That's what the word Marah means, bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. He prayed, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully, listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Now, have you heard of the law of threes when it comes to survival? We can go three minutes without oxygen, three days without water, and three weeks without food. And the text tells us right here in verse 22, it's been how long? Three days. Do you, do you, do you think they remember what happened? going through the sea, how would you ever forget that? Of course, they knew what just happened, but they've got kids in tow, and the aged aunts and uncles and parents are in tow. And if there's 600,000 men that leave Egypt, the scholars say there could be like 2 million people, and they're on the verge of not just like needing a drink, but of dying of thirst, literally dehydrating there in the desert. And so they're crying out. And there's a reason they haven't found the water. Here's a view of where they're traveling from space, the Sinai Peninsula. So they're, they're, they've, they've crossed up in here. They're coming down here. Here's the mountain where they're going to meet God, Mount Horeb, sometimes called Mount Sinai. And they're, they're in this it looks like this God-forsaken area. Here's what it looks like from the ground level. I mean, there's nothing growing here. See, see the next slide? Yeah, look at this place. This is a desert wasteland. 
And so what we see, first of all, is the desert begins to reveal things in, in our heart. It reveals our default to hard things. And there's this repeated phrase that we're going to keep running into in the beginning of chapter 15, verse 22, and all the way through chapter 16, verse 12. Eight times we're going to come across this word grumbling. Grumbling. They're grumbling. And so it's revealing the things of their heart. And it's revealing something really important. When we find ourselves grumbling through life, we've lost our grip, not on self-control, not on a positive mental attitude. Here's what we've lost our grip on, the goodness of God. And when that domino falls, the rest just follows in line. Adam and Eve's first temptation was to doubt the goodness of God. My lands, Adam and Eve, if he's a good God, these words aren't ever said, but if he's good, it's all implied. Why would he hold back that which is good for you? You'll be like God. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You need that. You deserve that. He's not good. You ought to abdicate, take over, and, and choose on your own. And so that's what's going on. They're grumbling. They've lost a grip on God's goodness. They forgot about what he's just done. And so what does God do? He says, all right, Moses, thanks for turning to me right now. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab that piece of wood and you want to just start smacking those people. <laughs> and see, you're laughing, but a whole bunch of our view of God, is, and that's exactly what he's doing in the desert. He is just beating me up one side and up the other side. And I think he even enjoys this. And I, this is some kind of retribution. This is kind of some twist of justice. And I messed up in the past and I'm just getting my due. This is God. This is what God does. And that is not what the text says. God doesn't even address their grumbling. Oh, he says, Moses, do you, do you see that piece of wood over there? Could have been any piece of wood. It didn't have anything to do with a piece of wood but just throw it in. And the bitter water became sweet. God is using this as a classroom to teach them about his compassion, his care, how he is more powerful than any difficulty that they're in, that he can rescue us in whatever is before us that would destroy us. And he's instructing them, you want to grow in faith? Here's what you need to do. Listen Listen carefully and, and follow what I say, believing that I'm good and that what I'm telling you here isn't a careless thing, but it's an essential thing. And he's using the desert not just to reveal the deficiencies of their frail hearts, but as a classroom to teach him about himself and about what it means to live with God in faith. And he does more than just throwing it. He takes him on and he brings him down to like Disney World or I don't know, Kalahari World or whatever. But it's awesome, right? Twelve springs. There's a lot of detail that is left out of narrative. So when we get detail, we go, why is that in there? What's that saying? He could have taken him to one place where there was one spring. Maybe it looked like this picture, right? But there was 12 springs. There is an abundance of life-giving, refreshing. Can you see the children? Oh, man, are they having a party. Can you see the palms in the middle of a desert, an oasis? 
How'd they get there? God, God, God knew where that was. He got them there. He led them to that place. He created that place for them. And so it's revealing things of the heart. It's a classroom teaching about God. It's a training God that's building their faith. How so? How is this building their faith? God met them when they thought they were going to die in the desert. And he brought them to water that they couldn't drink and then changed that water, the constitution of it, so what was bitter became a sweet well. And then he did even better. He took them to Elam with the 12 springs and the 70 palm trees. Another experience of God's provision, building their trust. First story. Second story. It's not about thirst, it's about hunger. Chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam, right? That bright, great, great Disney World place. I mean, it was a party in Elam. And they came to the desert of Sin, from the oasis back into the desert, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. So we're only in, we're a month out of Egypt, of God's mighty deliverance. That's where we're at. In the desert, the whole community grumbled. That's their default. Against Moses and Aaron, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out in the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. And let us know what they remember in the desert. And let us know what they're not remembering in the desert. What do they remember? Pots of meat? Oh, man, you start hearing the other words because there's a lot of times in the wilderness where the people want to go back and they'll say, oh, man, there was such good, there was such abundance. I mean, it's like we lived right next to Whole Foods and we had leeks and we had onion and we had fish and we had pots of meat. Man, that's what they're remembering, what they had. And what they're forgiving is what God has just given them. They're forgetting Elam. They're forgetting Mara. They're forgetting the angel of death passed over them. They're forgetting that they went out of Egypt with all the spoils of the people. Said, get out of here, get out of here. Here's my gold, here's my silver. Take it, get out. They're forgetting that they had victory over, God gave them victory over the enemy, Pharaoh, and his army. When they went through dry ground, the waters fell down on them. They're forgetting all that. But man, they sure remember in the pots. Remember those pots. And so they're on this road trip with God to the promised land, and there's a lot of grumbling going on in the back seat. You remember that? Like, get, hey, that's, my, that's the line. You're on my side. I had three sisters, man, which meant I had four mothers. That was tough. <laughs> and in 1963, when I was five, I'm 58, just to keep you from the math, we did a six-week road trip from Chicago all the way to the Redwood Forest and back. Every night, a different campground. I still remember, I'm not kidding you, I remember my parents chasing bears out of our sights, like in Glacier Park and in Yellowstone with pots and pans. Crazy. But just think about this. So this is a long road trip, right? We didn't have air conditioning in the 63 Chevy wagon. I mean, it was cool with the power window. Are you kidding me? and the seat that faced backwards. But man, you know, there was a lot of territorial thing. Hey, Madeline, you're on my side. Miriam, come on. And you know what would happen is sometimes dad's, the arm of the law would enter the back seat. You know, we do this. 
you know, and you've been on that. It, what is it about kids? They're always asking the same question on a road trip. What is it? I know, because you asked it like I did, and we heard it. And, you know, it wears you out. How much longer? Are we there yet? I got to go to the potty. Well, we just stopped. So, you know, if dad ever said this, I mean, it was one thing for the arm, but if dad ever said this, you know we were in trouble, right? If I have to stop, see, you heard it too. If I have to stop this car, it's going to be trouble. And you know what? God, God right there could have said, is that right? You, you, you want the pots of meat in Egypt. Well, guess what? Well, I'll just take you back there. I'll just take you back. What, what does he do? Verse 4, what does he do? What is his gracious response? This is our God. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Rain it down means an abundance. The people are to go out each day and gather enough. That was a clear instruction, enough for that day. In this way, I will test them. I'm going to build their faith. Are they going to trust me for the next day? Or are they going to hoard it, right? I'll test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, that would be Friday, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So what is God's response? It's not, so you want to go back to Egypt? Well, let me give you a one-way ticket. We can work this out right, real, real, quick, real quick. No, he says, hey, Moses, tell him, I'm, I'm going to rain it down. I'm going to get you bread from heaven. And so the instructions are really clear. Enough for today. Don't hoard it. Look what happened in verse... 20, because they did what probably I would have done. You know, they, were, they, they, had, they had a couple of Ziplocs on the side just in case. Verse 20. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. Of course they did. But it was full of what? Oh, man. Sorry, it's right before lunch. It was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with him. It's clear. Enough for today, you hoarded its spoils. That's a whole other sermon. Did you hear it? You hoard God's daily provision, and it'll rot and smell and make you sick. The other clear provision is, hey, we're, we're not going to gather on the Sabbath. Now think about this. The Sabbath is going to be referred to a couple of times. The only Sabbath reference here has to be to creation. God rested on the seventh day. We're to stop of our labor like God did of his creative work to connect with God and to rest. And he says, you, on the, uh, you're not going to gather on the Sabbath. That would be like work. And so on Friday, twice as much. Clear instruction. Most of them followed it. Some of them didn't. And God says in this, I want to build your faith. I want to train you up to trust me for tomorrow's bread. I, I want you to see that the stuff you gather on Friday, there's no maggots on Saturday because I'm God. And I want you to know that. And so he's teaching him. It's not just a trading ground. It's his classroom. He's teaching him about himself. He's reminding him in verse 6, because all they can remember is the pots of meat. And he's saying, hey, 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 fill in the story. Because remember what happened after the pots of meat? I took you through verse 6. 
He says, so Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? And so he's teaching him about himself, that he's good. And isn't it great that manna is more like frosted flakes than pretzels? I know some of you go, but I, I don't like sweet things. I like salty things. But isn't it, what, what a beautiful little picture. It was sweet. God's care, his daily provision. It was sweet. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. He's teaching him about himself, that he's compassionate. He's the same God that delivered him. He cares for them graciously, miraculously, daily providing for him. What are the miracles here? That it shows up with the dew each morning. And when the sun's hot, I don't know when that is, 10, 11, it's gone. What a miracle that when they gathered, it says in verse 18, if they had too much or too little, it always the right amount when they got it home. That was a miracle. It was a miracle that on Saturdays, it didn't rot. And it was a miracle that God provided that for them. Verse 35, for 40 years. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And Joshua 5.12 says the manna stopped the day they ate the food from the promised land. That's a miracle. And it was such an important lesson for God's people that God said, Mo, I want you to go get a mason jar. Well, they didn't have mason jars. But he said, I want you to go get a jar. And I want you to fill it with an omer. I want you to fill it up with an omer of this manna. And here's the last miracle of manna. And I want you to put it, he's going to tell them where to put it exactly in a few chapters, in the Ark of the Covenant, on which God's presence is associated, in which you also had the Decalogue, the two tablets, and in which you also had Aaron's rod that bloomed and blossomed, right? I want you to put there as a perpetual reminder for the generations that I'm a God who is good and I'm faithful to my word and I care about my people and I took care of you for 40 years in the wilderness. And so however many different ways they made their manna. I mean, can you think about, they were creative, don't you think? We know they were boiling it. We know they were grinding it. There were manna cakes. There was banana muffins. There was manna flatbread and manna meal, like oatmeal, right? Manna burgers and who knows what else. But every day they had it, reminding them of who God is. So there's the last one. Last story, it's another third story. Verse 1 of chapter 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. So God's leading them. So we didn't talk a lot about the, 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 the cloud. He said, you know, in, in the morning, before they even get the quail and, and, and the bread, you're going to see my glory. In fact, let, let's go back and pick it up because I didn't read it, and it's really important. So verse 7, And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? 
Then it says this, verse 10, while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. In the desert, God knew that they needed to see him in all of his beautiful, awesome power. And we go, what is glory? It's his goodness on display. He sees that. And so re remember what's going on. It started as God led him out of Egypt. It's the God going with his people. There's the pillar of fire at night. So think about that. It gets cold in the desert. And so you got the warmth of God's presence physically. And then you got the cloud. What do you need in a hot desert? You need shade. You got God in the cloud leading him. And so God is leading them to this place, Rephidim. Right? They camped at Rephidim. So I'm back in 17.1. But there is no water for the people to drink. You think God was surprised? Oh, my word, there's no water. God's, he's on a journey with his people to build them up as a people of faith, right? So he leads them to a place where the people don't have anything to drink. So they quarreled with Moses, verse 2, and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out, read, prayed. Moses prayed out to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Things are really going south. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you. See the cloud. God's standing before him, right? I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. That's Mount Horeb. That's Mount, you're thinking, no, this is Mount, the real one. Not the one right here in Madison. So this is Mount Sinai, same place, Mount Horeb. He's at the rock. He says, strike the rock. With the staff, right? And water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, and this is so easy to conclude in the desert, is the Lord among us or not? God, where are you? God, where are you? Joy, I, my prayers aren't going through the ceiling. I don't sense you. I don't feel your nearness. I just feel like you've lost track of me. That, that, that's, that's what's going on here. And when they said, is the Lord with us, we just got to just stop the video and hit rewind. And so our first, our first images are, you know, a lot of just desperate people, parched lips, and they look thirsty. Keep, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. All of a sudden we go, oh, 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 that morning. That morning they were gathering it. They, they just gathered more, more manna that day. There, there, there was the cloud of God's presence. See, the power of the desert experience, the difficult things, the crises of life, is they keep us from seeing what is real. I mean, our feelings are real, and then our feelings lead us to conclude truths about what is real today, but we, we don't have the wisdom and understanding to know what is true about my present situation. We think we do because we feel it so strongly. And so the feelings around the circumstances define what is true 
and what is real, and it redefines it because we've got to somehow, we've got to bring these two things together. What I'm feeling about my relationship with God, his presence or lack of in this situation, and, and what I know about him. And so to make those things connect, if my feelings and the circumstances say, there's no God, he's powerless, he doesn't care, then I got to reframe who is this God. So it redefines who God is. And, and, and it's, it's hard. And it's the fight of faith. And that's what they're in. That's what they're in. So I'm, I'm wondering, what's the nature of your faith right now? Is your faith growing or waning? Is, is it being crushed or is it being sustained and God is helping you persevere? Is, is it being destroyed or, or is, is God blessing it and you? There, there, don't, don't settle for, I think we're holding steady. When we're holding steady, trust me, we're, we're, we're moving the wrong way. So r- right now, how, how do you know this isn't going to wreck you? Are you positioned for this hard thing right now? Are you, are you positioned to help that friend right now? To help know how actually this hard thing could become a good thing that blesses their life. How, how do we get there? And, and the answer in the text is clear. It's trust, it's trust, it's trust, it's trust. And, and, and we go, well, yeah, but how does that work? And the text is telling us. I mean, the Bible will tell us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you're saved through faith, and this, your faith and your salvation, is a gift of God. So we understand faith is something that God gives, but he gives it and he grows it in these ways. And we don't want to miss the lessons of the wilderness wanderings of God's people. The first thing is, you want the desert to bless you instead of ruin you? Then remember God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 6, he says, tell them when they eat the quail, it's the God who brought them out of Egypt. They gave it to him. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. So the Exodus becomes this huge salvific event that the people of God are always called to look back on. We, we, we live on this side of the cross, right? So we're over here. Egypt is over there. The cross is my lectern right here. We're always looking at the cross. That's the reminder of God's faithfulness to the past. And then we have our own stories. Well, God met us and sustained us, and we remember that. You, you want to survive the desert, grow strong, you got to remember the past. There's something about the desert that gets us to forget it all. Or what we remember are pots of meat. And we forget God who gave us the pots of meat. So we remember his faithfulness. And here, here's a really important thing. In, in in addition to that, we got to be active today in looking for him, his goodness, his glory. And for them, it was the cloud. It was the pillar at night. For us, it's Jesus. That's God's goodness. So, I mean, what, what would you do about this, this awesome appearance of God in the cloud? I mean, I, mean, I think we would all go, wow. But now, now we've got God's glory. John says this, and the word became flesh speaking of Jesus, and he 
lived among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Now, now I know something different about God's goodness when I look at Christ. I got so much more. His awesome, majestic power, presence, radiance, yes. But now I've got something more in Christ who humbled himself and became a man who suffered for me, who conquered death, who set aside his privileges of God to serve us. So we look for his glory and, and, and we're on a quest to gather up the daily provisions. Isn't it interesting that God didn't say to Mo, he said, Mo, here's what I want you to tell the people. Get your jars, get your big wooden bowls and put them out at the doorstep of your tent and there's like this Santa manna who's gonna come every night and fill your bowls and your little jars. And all you need to do is just go get it. It's like, you know, it's like one of those, I'm thinking about, you know, Quaker Oats. You've got your own little can of Quaker Oats. And you just make your quick oats each morning. He said, he said no, you, you got to gather it. Trusting God in the desert is intentionally every day searching for his sweet, good provision. And there are going to be times where you go, man, I can't find a whole lot. It's like a morsel. But let me say, God's grace, whatever what, whatever quantity it is, is what I've just coined this week, wasabi grace. <laughs> See, you've had wasabi. I had never had wasabi. So we're having dinner with friends and ahi tuna's on the grill. And we each got this little, nice little dish of soy sauce and then there's some green stuff. I'm going, what's that? He said, well, that's wasabi. That's how I guess you say wasabi said, so what is that? He said, well, it's kind of like got a horseradish kick. That was an understatement. <laughs> he said, just, you know, get a bunch of that and mix it in. <laughs> See, you've had it. Well, look, I'm a sissy Swiss palate guy. So I knew I was going to go very lightly on the green stuff. So I mixed it in. I saw my friend, he, man, he had a big old dollop in there and he's got it going. And I take my first bite and it, it's kind of gentle at the front, and then as it's going down, it, gotcha! It's just a little bit. It's just a little bit. But you know you got it. Wasabi grace. But I got to go find it. And there's something about the desert that, that we, we're blinded to. We don't see it. Can't find it. It's an intentional quest to gather up his daily, sweet, gracious provision. And what are the provisions? His glory, Christ. I keep going back to Jesus, who he is, his love for me, his death on the cross for me, his presence through his spirit. I, I, I've got these, these, these remembrances of his, of his care, right? I, I've got the rest. I mean, don't forget here, one of the great instructions here in the desert is this teaching about the second gift of manna is Sabbath. And there is no law yet. There's no remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's chapter 20. We're not there yet. We're in chapter 16. And this is, this is something to, to recover, not just when it's hard in life, but all of life. We were created in God's image and the, the, the creation rhythm is one day in seven, rest. S Sabbath means stop. Stop. 
connect with God. Remember who he is. Remember his love for you. Worship him. Spend time with his people. These are his provisions. There's the provision of, of people praying. So I can tell you how many people this week have said, pray for your daughter, pray for your daughter. That's awesome. You've got Moses repeatedly praying for the grumbling people who are struggling. In chapter 17, the next story we didn't get to, the battle with the Amalekites, you've got Aaron and her holding up Moses' two arms as he's praying to God over the battle. We need people to pray for us. We need community. That's why we keep pushing people, get in a group, get in a group. And we got to take it a day at a time. One of the dangers of the desert is we forget the past and we're preoccupied with the future which hasn't even happened. And so we miss God in the present. We miss his graces, his presence, his power, his provision. And we're not even thinking about his promises. We're freaking out about what's going to be worse tomorrow. One day at a time. Enough for today. Gather enough for today. It's about today. It's about today. And you know that you're living in trust and growing, and the desert isn't wrecking you, but by God's grace, growing you by checking out one gauge. There's one gauge, and you just need to look at it. You, you have it. You didn't know it? You have a gratitude gauge. So the, the repeated phrase that we keep bumping into is not a phrase, but a word. What's the word? They're grumbling, right? Eight times. So play the tape this week. Go back, listen to yourself. You go, yeah, I'm a negative Nelly. You know, I, I, I am always grumbling, complaining. Um, you know you're remembering his past and you're pursuing and taking in uh, his present provision if you are a person whose life is marked with thankfulness and gratitude, not grumbling and complaining like, God, why have you left me? You may feel that way. You can, God's big enough for you to say that. But if our lives are marked with bitterness and grumbling, well, a huge indication. Oh, man, I'm not, I'm not walking in faith. This thing's going to overwhelm me. It's just a matter of time. And look, it's not easy. Not on your life is this. And that's why the Bible calls it the fight of faith. I finished the race, Paul says, 2 Timothy 4. I have fought the good fight. Finish it, believing that God is good. So as the desert wrecked you, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary, you're worn out, I'll give you rest. Jesus actually picks up this story in John 6. He says, I'm the bread of life. The man in the wilderness, it was from God through Moses, but they, they all died. I, I'm gonna give you bread that'll sustain you forever. I'll give you water where you'll never be thirsty again. That's what this is about. Look to Jesus. He wants to give you faith. He wants to grow faith, and you need to call out to him. And the reason you might not want to call out to him right now is because you're proud or you're believing a lie. But you know what? You're believing this lie that God you know, gave you a chance before and you've blown it. You've said it many times and it's too late and this is your life. It's, it's just to wither and die here in the wilderness. Or, or you're just going, I don't think there is a God. So why would I call out? 
Well, you call out because there's nothing else to do. This week, I was talking to my friend. She said her brother was up, up in the woods up north, chopping down a tree, always, always has his chaps on, but he didn't that day. And he's taking down this big old hardwood in the back of the woods. He doesn't have neighbors really around him. And as the tree's been cutting down trees for 30 years, cuts this tree down and it twists funny. It knocks the saw out of his hand. It goes right into his leg. And then the tree falls on him and pins him. He's bleeding out. He's trying to get a tourniquet to stop the bleeding. He couldn't. He's trying to get the tree off him. He couldn't. He did the only thing he could do. He just cried out, help! It's not like he had neighbors around him. He's just crying out, help! He's like the only guy up there. Help! And in God's good providence, over the hill, behind him quite a ways, is a neighbor walking out of his house to his car when he hears this distant, faint, what was that? I don't know what that was, but that, I, that's not right. Something's wrong here. I got to go. His nearest neighbor was this man. He finds him, and he saves that man's life. You got to cry out. God, help me. One of the things that God graciously does in the desert is he brings us to the end of ourselves. And the logical thing to say at this point is, I don't need you. I, you know what? I, I'm not going to bleed out. I can fix this. That's how we got into this mess. And then I want to say to those of you who are in it, and, and it's really hard to come here, because when you're going through it, there's something about coming into a place of worship where like the floodgates of emotions start welling up, and um, it's just, it's, you, you feel like, gosh, maybe I should just get myself together before I come back. I'm so glad that you're here there are people in your small group, your life group that know what you're going through. And it's not just you. It's not just about you. As, as you're walking with the Lord, as you're wanting the desert hard thing to be a training ground for good, that does something. When that woman walked into my office and through agonizing tears just streaming down her face says, the Lord didn't lead me here to drown me. Man, that was just a bolt of strength for me because I knew she wasn't talking about her ability to swim and navigate really turbulent waters. She was just talking about, this is what I know about God. He is not going to leave me or forsake me. He is a good God, and I'm trusting in the midst of the crucible of it. And that's huge for me to go, yeah, that's who he is. Thank you for reminding me. You know, we can go through the platitudes and the nice, sweet little uh, cliches in the world today about what it means to be a Christ follower. But the, 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 you know, the money is on the table, so to speak, when we're actually loving God, trusting him, and our life is falling apart. That's when your colleagues at work, that's when your neighbors, that's when your unbelieving family goes, what's up with this woman's faith What's up with this God? It's powerful. And so we bless you even as we pray for you. Lord God, we pray that you would grant us faith. We thank you that you've revealed yourself as a merciful God who rains down sweet provisions every day who sent your son, the bread of life, to satisfy 
all that we need in this life for all that this world holds and Jesus for the wildernesses that you went through and the cross that you were suspended on for us we bless you and we confess Lord we are prone to wander prone to leave you so Lord we say again together here's our heart Lord take and seal it seal it for your courts above amen